Hebrews 11. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Hebrews 11. We're going to read verses 1 to 3 together. We've been in a transition part of the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews at the end of chapter 10 as we move forward into chapter 11 and chapter 12. So we'll just read 1, 2, and 3 this morning. I want you to, and I'll mention this again in a moment, but I want you to remember that the letter of Hebrews is one long thought. It's not a whole bunch of thoughts packed together or linked together. The letter of Hebrews is one long thought. That's why, again, going back, remember all the therefores? Constantly therefore. He makes a point, therefore, and therefore, and he just keeps building upon it to come to the final conclusions that he has towards the end of the letter. But keep that in mind as we talk, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So we'll read Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 3. Now faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. We've spent the last four weeks talking about our need for faithful endurance in the Christian walk, that this endurance is only possible by faith, which faith is belief, and that this faith is the product of grace, and that grace is not some weird mystical force that comes upon us, but grace is God's personal, powerful, and active work in our life. And it's been my goal for us to understand that our desire and ability to endure is only possible as we choose to believe God to be who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised to do. I've also wanted us to understand that this belief can only exist through humble dependence upon God's active work in our lives. We cannot endure in our own strength. We cannot faithfully live the life that God desires us to live on our own. And we will not believe, we will not have faith without God's presence and powerful working in our beings. Now we're going to move into chapter 11. But before the writer presents to us examples of individuals who by faith endured, he wants to speak to us regarding a foundational truth which must be believed. It actually links back to verses 1 and 2. It's not the beginning of his talk about faith. It's not an example of faith, but it actually links to verses 1 and 2. He says in verse 1, that faith is the conviction of the things not seen. It is the evidence of the things not seen. And then in verse three, he says, by faith we understand 
that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He juxtaposes this concept of the visible things, what is seen and what is not seen, before he goes into talking about people who are examples who endured by faith. Now at first glance, in verse three, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. At first glance, it may seem obvious to you what that foundational truth is that I mentioned a moment ago. The foundational truth that must be believed by faith. It seems almost obvious to conclude that if a person does not accept that God created everything from nothing, then that person is not a person of faith. I mean, that just seems to jump off the page and be what he's talking about. And that then often leads to a debate regarding the origins of everything that exists, what is often referred to as creationism versus evolution, with the conclusion that if one does not believe in creation apart from evolution, that that person must not be a child of God. And, and quite honestly, when I've taught from Hebrews 11, and particularly verse 3 in the past, I taught on creation because I thought that was the main point. I have pages from previous sermons from this verse. Um, And I thought I was pretty well set for writing this sermon. I thought this will be an easy week. This one I've, I've taught on so many times, it's second nature to me. I used to teach a class at the college on creation versus evolution. Not in the way you think though. I dealt with social issues. 20 years ago, before social issues were social issues, I was talking about how a view of how God made the world affects our view of our world. And my class was on social Darwinism and how it has infected our thinking and our view of our world without us even realizing it. Darwin was a racist, if you want to talk about racists. If you go look up the full title of his book, Origin of Man, the rest of the title, which is not put on most of his books, I mean, when they're reprinted today, talks about um, the superior species of man. And he believed that there were multiple races, which was not part of the church's thinking in the time of Darwin and before that. The church used to believe there was one race. He believed in multiple races, and he believed that there was one superior race. Darwin's teaching, pushed by his um, uh, accomplice Nischke, went on to lead to the Franco-Prussian War, World War I, and World War II. All of that was the result of social Darwinism. Our view of human's role in this world compared to animal's role in this world is part of social Darwinism. There's a number of things you could talk about in relation to that, and not just the issue of how it came to be. But as I began 
to write my sermon with all of these wonderful thoughts in my head, all of a sudden it hit me. That's not the point of this verse. That's not the point of what he's talking about in Hebrews 11. Because, and it was very deflating for me. Because A, it meant it was going to be a lot more work to figure out what he is talking about. And B, I thought I was right for so long on this verse. Now, is there a reference to creation? Yes. Is there a reference to how things are made? Yes. But is the main point a debate over creation versus another form of origin of all that we see? I don't think that's the main point. So let me explain that first. There's this word called context. You've heard me use it before, right? Context. We've got to keep verses and passages in context. What the author was saying beforehand and what the author says afterwards has bearing upon what the author is saying in the moment. So first of all, for us to deal with this verse in an honest way, I think, we have to deal with it in its context. So what is our context? What is the context of Hebrews 11.3? What have I been talking about for the last four weeks? Enduring by faith and that faith is a product of grace. That was laid out for us in verse 36 of chapter 10. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Again, that endurance then is linked to faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. The writer of Hebrews actually takes Habakkuk and uses it in a different way than Habakkuk meant to use it. Habakkuk, when he was speaking of the just shall live by faith or my righteous one will live by faith, he was speaking of life coming, spiritual life coming, that you come alive by faith. But the writer of Hebrews, for his purposes and the arguments he's making here, takes that verse, quotes it, and uses it in reference to how we live day to day. That the righteous of God will live their daily life by faith and therefore will endure. And now we're learning about faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He also talks about promised things, that you have need of endurance to do the will of God so that you may receive what is promised. Well, that, those ideas of endurance and promise are not left behind in chapter 10. He's going to move forward And you'll notice in verse 13 of chapter 11, he says, these all died in faith, referring to the people he's talked about so far. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Matter of fact, he's going to use that word promise over and over again in chapter 11. It's a repeated word. They died in faith. They didn't receive the things that were promised, but they endured by faith. Again in verse 39, he makes this statement, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what, is, what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
So he's taking this idea of promise that he's already introduced in chapter 10, the promises of God, and he's pulling them through into chapter 11 and, and moving us forward with that idea of promise, that there's a link of some kind between faith and promise that he's already presented to us at the end of chapter 10. Nor has he left the idea of endurance behind. He says in chapter 12 and verse 1, this famous passage, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In verse 3 of chapter 12, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So he hasn't left the idea of endurance behind in chapter 10. He hasn't left the idea of promise behind in chapter 10. The examples in chapter 11 are going to be people who endured looking for the promises of God by faith. So we've kept those ideas of endurance and promise and faith in chapter 11. And they come to bear, they have to bear upon chapter 3, I mean verse 3 in chapter 11. So what is the main point of chapter 3 then? Understanding it's in the context still of endurance, promise, and faith. What are we to understand from from verse 3 of chapter 11? It has a side discussion possible on the origins of all that exists. But the primary argument that I believe the writer of Hebrews is wanting to make in verse three is that when God speaks, what he says is true and powerful. The word of God is true and powerful and what he has decreed will come to pass. What he has promised will come to be. And therefore we can and we should believe in what he has said. We should rest in his promises. We should find confidence in his words and we should endure firm to the end. The main point of verse three is not found in the idea primarily that the universe was created, but rather the word of God, powerful, effective, true, created everything. The focus is the word of God. So with that in mind, I'd like us to go back to Genesis 1. You can keep your finger in Hebrews 11 if you'd like, but I'd like to go back to Genesis 1 and look at what happens when God speaks. For those of you who are old enough, that means you're, old, you're older than probably 40 years old, maybe 30 years old. But for those of you who are old enough, there was a set of commercials a while ago, a long time ago now, about an investing brokerage called E.F. Hutton. How many of you have heard of E.F. Hutton? So in the E.F. Hutton commercial, see, you're all older than 40. Sorry about that. Yes. I'm older than 40, that's what you all just said. 
And in those commercials, you'd have all these people debating something and there would be just noise going on. And then E.F. Hutton would speak and everybody would stop and turn and listen. I've always, and I've, I've, throughout the years, there was, when I was in fellowship in Tama, there was a guy on the deacons, his name was Jerry Ross. Jerry didn't talk a lot. Uh, he, was, he was a very humble, very quiet man. Um, but when Jerry Ross spoke, people listened. Uh, he, he just had a depth to him. And whenever he had something to say in a deacon's meeting, it would be quiet and people would listen to Jerry. Now when he was done, people might have taken back up and just started chattering away. But, but Jerry was E.F. Hutton. I would argue that God is the ultimate E.F. Hutton. When he speaks, you better listen. But in chapter 1 of Genesis, we have the, the story of how everything came to be which is what the writer of Hebrews is referencing here. But I think he wants us to see God's speaking. So let's read this. And you, just in your mind as we read, focus in on when God speaks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That actually is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I mean, it's early on, obviously, but it's one of my favorite. If you picture what's happening here, there's this sphere, this mass hanging out there in space, and there is ultimate and complete darkness. There is no light. And the entire face of it is covered with water. The whole, the whole planet is covered with water. There's no dry land. And, and that, by the way, as you go through scripture, these themes now are gonna play out, the dark versus the light and the water versus the ground. It's, it's all gonna begin to play out. There's chaos. The idea here in the words are chaos. There's just this looks like the planet is being whipped by massive storms. There's no purpose to what exists. It's just there. And over this dark, chaotic scene, and I get goosebumps every time I talk about this or I, I think about this. Over this dark, chaotic scene, the Spirit of God is hovering. There's an anticipation. The word in the Hebrew literally means hover. How's that for something deep this morning? The Spirit of God exists before anything else existed on earth, and He's hovering. He's just waiting to do His thing and to make it happen. In verse 3, and God spoke. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
And we could debate all day long how old the earth is, but since God said the one is day and the other is night, we call it day and night. Verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let us separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or what we would call space, the sky, the atmosphere, and space. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And, the God, and God saw that it was good and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply upon the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The sixth day. Eleven times in this passage, we are told God said something. And every time God said something, every time God spoke, we're told, and it was so. And every time that we are told God said something, and every time we're told that it was so, it came to be, we're also told it was good. God said, and it was so, and it was good. In fact, at the end, when he looks it all over, he says, that's really good. Uh, I'm a perfectionist. I'm, I'm a, my name is John, and I am a recovering perfectionist. The older I get, the less energy I have to care whether or not I'm a perfectionist. But my wife can tell you I'm a perfectionist. If I make something, it's never good enough. I just finished a carpentry project in the house. You might come over and say, That's, that looks really nice. My wife and my kids are saying, that's pretty, that's really nice. I'm looking at it and going, yeah, well, I got a drill bit stuck in the bottom of this one part because I had a cheap bit and when I was drilling in, it bound in the yoke and snapped off. And instead of having a screw there holding it together, I now have a drill bit there holding it together because I can't get the thing out. But you can't see that. I can. And I know where every little piece of wood putty is on that thing. And I know where the stain wasn't quite right. And so I look at my job and I say, it's okay. Everything I do is that way. It's okay. At best, it's okay. Most of the time, eh, I'd like to do that over again. But God is the ultimate perfectionist. And when he got done speaking, he looked at it and said, that's really good. Uh, you know, we, we kind of picture it like, that is good. <laughs> I like to think of it in terms of, that's really good. It's exactly what I wanted. I love that. That's God's perspective. His statements were purposeful. His statements more powerful. When he spoke, things immediately came into being. When he spoke, 
We're told that light suddenly pierced and overwhelmed the oppressive darkness. When he spoke, function and purpose overcame chaos. When he spoke, life sprang up in the form of plants and animals, things which previously did not exist on this earth. When he spoke, blessing rained down upon his creation, bringing reproductive fruitfulness. What he spoke happened, and he took satisfaction in all that he had spoken into existence. It was good. And all that came into being was a reflection of the goodness of his nature. It was good not just because God is the ultimate craftsman. It was good because it reflected him. To look at the creation was to see God. That's what we're told later on in Romans 1. You can look at the creation and see that there is a God and see that he is powerful. Even in its corrupted, decayed, damaged state today, you can still see that there is a God. The writer of Psalm 33 links the spoken creative word to God, of God to his nature and purposes. Psalm 33 is a great psalm. If you've got time today, I suggest you go back and read through all of Psalm 33 and think about what, what the writer is saying. But in verse four, the writer tells us that the word of God is upright. His word is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He says, he goes on to say, he loves righteousness and justice. And therefore the earth is full of the steadfast love of the, of the Lord. His word, his work, his love. In support of his statement, his argument, he goes on to say that by the word of the Lord, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. But this truth regarding God's word is not seen as a sterile Bible fact that we're to tuck away in our brain. The writer of Psalm 33 wants us to see that because God's word is powerful and true, it it should impact us. What he says, and specifically referencing what he said during the creation, what he says is powerful and true. And because of this, the writer of Psalm 33 says that God's people are to shout for joy in the Lord. They are to give thanks to him and sing to him. When when God's people think about God's word and how powerful he is and how righteous he is and how just he is and how when he speaks, things come to be, they're reflecting upon that. It should bring something in our soul that causes us to praise him. And then the psalmist ends with these words, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. 
You could almost say, because of what God said, because of what God has done, reflecting who he is to us. Our soul waits, that word waits means to trust in him. It doesn't mean to sit in a corner and go, okay, God, come on, come on, come on, come on. If you trace that word through the Old Testament and how it's used, it's waiting in the sense of, even God, if you don't do what I need you to do or what I think you should do right now, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to put my confidence and my dependence in you because you are my help. You are my shield. You have shown your word is true and that when you speak, you get what you want. He goes on to say, our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. And then he says this, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. If you trace that word wait, you'll find its end is actually in Romans chapter five. You trace it all the way through the Old Testament. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It's another famous. That wait there is not speaking of, I'm just going to wait until God does his thing. It is complete and utter trust in God. And in Romans chapter 5, he quotes from one of the passages speaking of waiting. It also says, and hope does not make us be ashamed. Because what God has said will come to pass. His word's powerful and his words are true. So we're going to hope in you and we're going to live in the midst of your steadfast love. And how do we live as followers of God, trusting in him? We endure. Yeah, we sing. We praise Him. We shout with words of worship to Him. But we keep on keeping on, doing what God wants us to do, living in the way He wants us to live, believing the things He wants us to believe. Psalm 33 is all about the fact that because God's word is powerful and true, when it's believed by his people, it produces hope and trust in their hearts. And all through the Old Testament, we could find other references showing us that God's creative words are powerful and true. But it is what the Apostle John writes that I find most interesting in relation to our study of Hebrews 11.3. It's a beautiful passage. I love John. It's a beautiful passage where he writes. And it's very familiar to us. In chapter one of his gospel, John says this, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God. And the, uh, the sorry, the word was with God, and the Word was God. He, this Word, 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Hmm. That's an interesting little statement. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him. We suddenly have a link in the Gospel of John between creation and the Word, God's Word. He's using it in a very unusual way. In him, well, let me back up. All things were made by, through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Life and light. Where do we learn about first about life and light? Genesis 1. Where do we learn first about the Word of God in Genesis chapter 1? And here's the thing. When I say the Word of God, you probably initially think the Bible, right? Because that's how we use it so often. This is the Word of God, and that's a way to say it. That's true. But what, what I'm speaking of here is God's spoken Word. And John says... God's spoken word is Jesus. And John, to start off his gospel proving that Jesus is God, the Son of God, in whom you should believe for eternal life, begins with saying that this Jesus is God's spoken word. But he's not just spoken word, he's an actual being. And that this actual being the spoken word of God, brought everything into existence. A link, again, between God speaking and the creation of the earth. Again, if you go through the Old Testament and you start looking at this, you're going to find it all over the place. That God's word is linked to the creation. And the life that came when God spoke and the light that came when God spoke. It wasn't just a physical life, and it wasn't just a physical light. It was spiritual life and spiritual light. And this light penetrated that darkness when God spoke, and the darkness could not defeat that light. And this passage confidently proclaims Jesus not only as God, but equal with God, the Father, which is amazing. But my interest in this passage this morning is that by understanding Jesus as God's word and understanding Jesus's role in the creation as God's word, John provides us a bridge that links Genesis 1 and Hebrews 11.3. There's a bridge all of a sudden between those two. When the writer of Hebrews states that the universe was created by the word of God, I don't believe he is simply referencing mere words. Remember, 
that the foundation of all that we are to believe in Hebrews and all that we are to rest in for hope is Jesus, his person, and his work. All the way up to this point, it has been about Jesus over and over and over again. Jesus is the great this, Jesus is the greatest this, Jesus is the best this, Jesus is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. To the point that we come to the middle of Hebrews chapter 10, and Jesus as the high priest offered himself once for all sin, so that where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no more remembrance of it. So let us come near confidently to the throne of God. And, and we are commanded to draw near. We are commanded to continue to believe. We are commanded to continue to gather. We are told about what happens if you deny this to be true. If you deny Christ, this is who you are. If you reject it because there's no more sacrifice for sin. And then he launches right into, you have need of endurance. And because you need, have need of endurance, you need faith. And faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith, the men of old received their commendation. By faith, we believe. By faith, we believe what? That God, in the person of Jesus, has spoken. And the words, the worlds, came to be. The main point of Hebrews 11.3 is that we are called to believe by the gracious, powerful work of God in us that everything God has promised rests upon his word in the person of Jesus from the foundation of the world. The mention of the creation is not there to begin a debate about creation versus other forms of origin. The mention of the creation is to follow a Hebrew tradition as he writes to Hebrews that when God speaks, what he wants happens. And when God promises, he keeps his promises because, well, everything was created through Jesus. The redemption of the fallen creation is accomplished in Jesus. And everything that has been promised will come to fulfillment through Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, not just because he died and sacrificed himself, but all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus because all the promises of God are the word of God and Jesus is the word from the very beginning until the end of all that we know now. All the promises of God are in Jesus. And Paul says, that is why 
Through him, we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now why would he put that here in verse 3? Why would the writer of Hebrews all of a sudden in verse 3 put in this lovely little statement? By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not visible. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What's the point of putting that in there? At least this. That as we begin to read about Enoch and Moses and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and the myriads of others that he just glosses over in the end. We got to understand that our faith is not to rest in Enoch or Noah or Moses or Abraham or Sarah or Jacob or any of the rest of those characters. We are not to come to Hebrews 11 and say, oh, I want to be like Abel. I want to be like Enoch. I want to be like Noah. I want to be like Moses. I want to be like Jacob. I want to be like Abraham. I want to be like Sarah. We are to come to chapter 11 and understand that we are to believe by faith in the word of God and his promises. That is how we are going to endure. And that is how we are going to receive the promises and that all of these people are not heroes of the faith. They are very flawed human beings just like you and just like me who by faith in the word of God, the promises of God, endured. Chat verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she had considered him faithful who promised. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. By faith, we can endure when we choose to believe that the word of God, namely Jesus, is powerful and true and all that he promised will come to be. It's through faith in the promises of God, established and accomplished in the person of Jesus, that we begin our spiritual journey as children of God. Is it not by faith in Jesus? And it is by faith in the promises of God as we are united with Jesus that we live obediently as children of God. And it is by faith in the promises of God that we will one day stand in the presence redeemed and restored by the power of Jesus. So we can and we should believe in what he has said. We can go back to the very beginning and see the power and the truth 
of the Word of God. And we can trace Him all the way through the Old Testament as all the stories point us to Him. And we can look back to the cross and see where He accomplished redemption. And we can look forward to what is promised one day because we can believe in what He has said and therefore we should rest in His promises. We should find confidence in His Word and we should endure firm to the end. Let's pray. Father, You have spoken at many times and in many ways through the prophets. But you have most fully revealed yourself. More fully revealed yourself than even what you have in your word. You have fully revealed yourself to humanity in the person of Jesus. The express image of you. God, give us faith to believe that. Give us faith to believe that Jesus wasn't just a good man. He was the very Word of God. To not just to believe that He was able to do miraculous things. help us to believe he could do those things because he is very God and help us never to forget that the things that you have promised and that your son has promised by the power of the Holy Spirit in us help us to never let go of believing in the promises that still wait You have promised not only to redeem us, you have promised to change us into the image of your Son. It was your purpose in redeeming us. And you have promised to bring us out to an abundant end. Help us to endure by faith, resting in your Son, your Word, and his power and the promises. In his name. Amen.